I first of all just want to say thank you for the last three months we've been going through the book of Nehemiah. And the response back to me has been very good. Nehemiah is a different book. I can remember when I was a, a beginning believer and I came to church and they're talking about this guy named Nehemiah from some long ago building some wall I have no idea about. I tuned out, actually. I, but people were tuned in. I really appreciate it. And I'd come into church and I'd often have my arms folded and I'd say, why should I believe this? You know, is, is this God real? Is he really real? I just wanted to hear it clear. And that's why, to some degree, I'm really excited about the next two messages because it's our story. We call it the Passion Week. Sunday, Palm Sunday, when Jesus came into the city of Jerusalem and they had palms waving and cloaks on the ground. Singing Hosanna in the highest is the beginning of Passion Week or that week that procured for us an eternal inheritance in heaven for the rest of our lives. This one week changed everything. On Friday of that week, which we're going to talk about in Good Friday, is the day that Jesus died for you, for me, on the cross. And then Sunday following is when the grave was rolled away and he arose. So Passion Week is from Palm to Resurrection. And I like how Danix. Danny used that illustration of the first mountain as Palm Sunday when they are cheering. The valley is the death. And then the other mountain is the resurrection. But today we're going to talk about Palm Sunday. And if you can open up to Luke 19, we are going to ask the question of why did they praise him and why should we praise him? Because they were singing Hosanna. Hosanna to the son of David. And Hosanna means God saves. It's really what it means. Praise the Lord for his salvation that's coming in this king who's going to deliver us. I think they were hoping for a different deliverance than they, were, than they came, but we're going to talk about that in a second. So Luke 19, I want us to begin in verse 35. And we're going to focus on verse 40. So it begins by saying in verse 35, they brought it to Jesus. What is it? It's a donkey that was prepared for him. So they brought a donkey to Jesus. They threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. So Jesus got on top of the donkey and they started leading him into town. As he went along, means he's going down this winding road into the city of Jerusalem. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down into the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He didn't like, the Pharisees didn't like that his disciples were excited about this and rattling the crowds. And here's what Jesus said to the Pharisees. I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones, the very stones themselves, will cry out. And the stones he's talking about are the stones that Nehemiah built that we got done talking about. The wall that surrounded Jerusalem, Jesus pointed to them and said, if people are not celebrating me on this day, the stones, they get it, and they would cry out. 
And so people started singing Hosanna and praising Him and exalting in Him. And I think they were doing it for a couple of reasons. One reason, I think, is because of all the miracles. It says of all the signs and wonders they saw. So here comes this man who would heal the blind, give the deaf hearing, would raise the dead, and would multiply loaves and fishes was coming into town, and people had a celebrity in their midst. So they're excited about that. I think another reason they're excited is they thought he was coming to be the king, to set up the throne of King David back on Jerusalem and overcome the Roman oppression and throw out all those wretched Pharisees, those religious people. In fact, this day was predicted all through Scripture that Jesus would arrive on this day. It's very specific in Daniel that this was the day the Messiah was to arrive. And so people naturally cried out. And Jesus said, if you would get it, Pharisees, you too would praise him. Because the stones themselves even understand. So he's using a metaphor here about the stones that, that they'd have to cry out because praise is the only appropriate response. And really the question is why? Why is this the appropriate response? Why is praise on this day the only way to respond. And that's what I want to address, and I want to make it very simple. I want this to be for somebody like me that comes in here and just says, why, why should I praise God? What has he done for me? Because really, this world stinks, to be honest with you. You watch the news, and it's very depressing. I come in here for an hour, and I'm supposed to be excited, because I've got to go back out there. Why should I praise God? And he's going to explain it. But I want to go back to an earlier story in chapter 19. Go to 19, 1 through 10. Chapter 19, 1 through 10 is going to explain why we need to praise him, but it's going to do it in a very unique way. In fact, I think Luke 19, 1 through 10 is a mini Palm Sunday, or it's a mini picture of what was to happen on Palm Sunday, wherein this story, the man got it where Jerusalem, God's chosen people, missed it completely. And the question is why. And you'll see what I mean here in a second. Look at verse 1. Begins by saying this, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, the song says he was a wee little man. He was a short little guy. Because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see it, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. He welcomed him gladly. Gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. How dare him is what they're saying. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation, Hosanna's, today salvation, has come to this house 
because this man too is a son of Abraham. And then the key verse, and this is what we're going to focus on is verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is why we praise him, because the Son of Man came, he arrived in town, so in Zacchaeus' case, he came to the city of Jericho. He came, he arrived in the flesh. In Jerusalem, he came on a donkey to the people of Israel, the chosen. He came in the flesh. And did you know he comes through the Holy Spirit to you every day? He is arriving here to you today. The Son of Man. He's got an objective. To seek and save. In the town of Jericho, he's looking for a guy by the name of Zacchaeus. A sinner. A tax collector. Who was lost. The man was lost. When he came to Jerusalem, he's coming for his own people who thought they were already found. And he's coming for you to seek and to save the lost. So that's really what we're going to talk about. We're not talking about walls and Nehemiah and all this weird stuff. We're going to talk about one verse because it's that important. And I want to break it down. The first thing is this. He came. Who did? Very clearly, Jesus says the Son of Man. The Son of Man is a title. It's an official title that was first seen in the book of Daniel. But the Son of Man is a title which is talking about he who was from the beginning, before time began. The Son of Man is a title for the one who created all things. John says all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. This is amazing. So you can say it like this. The person who came is the one who created the world that he came to. The author of the book came into the book to be the main character of the story. The one who has complete control or the author, the one who has authority over all he made, he was willing to come be a subject to the one who should be subject to him. That's the ultimate of humility. My question is, why would he do this? Like thinking through this, and as a skeptic, I'd say, why would the creator of the world come and subject himself to the people he made and are often ignorant of him and wicked? Why would he put himself under that? Why would he do that? It's very frustrating to me. It's incredibly frustrating. And if we're honest, it would, you'd have to admit it's very frustrating. Here's why it frustrates me. Jesus, the king who allows those people who know nothing of his kindness and goodness to have control over his creation, and he gives them to right to have power. I don't understand it. Why would he let evil people rule? And he still does. All the time. I had someone come in this week. They were distraught over those six people that were killed at that Christian school. And they said, why would God allow this? Why would he allow six people to be gunned down in cold blood? Why doesn't he do anything? Seems like everything is wrong these days. Politically speaking, just lo it looks like those who hate him most are given the most power. It doesn't make any 
sense to me. And what's worse, those same people who are given power are usually the ones who are doing the most damage to this world. Why do we put up with it? Why don't we as Christians fight back, take control, and put everything under his steep? Because he deserves it. And then I got thinking a little bit more. Jesus could have ended this nightmare the first time he came. When he came into the world the first time, he could have cleaned house, thrown out the Romans, got rid of the religious leaders, shut down all the wicked with one breath, punished the cruel, set up a throne of David over Jerusalem and bring benevolence to the whole world. Why didn't he do that when he had the chance? But he didn't do it. When you look at Palm Sunday, sure, they sang Hosanna, but I don't. what they were singing was the same thing I'd probably be singing. Finally, the king's come. He can set up camp. And he didn't. He didn't. He didn't do anything of the sort. And what's even worse, in less than a week, he is going to be murdered by the people who sang Hosanna. He had to know that was going to happen. Why? I mean, for many years, I was very confused about this. Why would he die? If he was all-seeing, all-knowing, and all-powerful, and he made the world and everything in it, why didn't he just take it over? Because his mission is much more clandestine, covert, and important than just taking over. The reason he came is for a more important mission and is to seek and to save. Not to rule and conquer. Ruling and conquering is the easy part. That's simple. He could do it in the click of a finger. He could take over. I think that's sort of when we get out of balance. We just want him to take over. We get angry. The hard part is to persuade people to love you. That's hard to seek and to save. So the first time he came was to win hearts. And it's hard for people to realize that. He's looking for a kind of people. He's looking for a, a character quality of the people he wants to rule with them. He's not just looking for people to rule with him. He's looking for a kind of people to rule with him. To be before they do. Let me show you what I mean. Go to 1 Samuel 16. 1 Samuel's in the Old Testament. It's right after the book of Judges. And 1 Samuel's all about setting up the king. The first king that was set up, does anybody know the first king's name of Israel? Saul. Saul was a big dude. Saul was a foot taller than everybody else or head taller than everybody else. He was strong, good-looking, smart. Everybody said, that's the guy. That's the guy. Problem with Saul, he's awfully arrogant. He be, became very impressed by himself. It's called pride. And he started making God furious because he would even offer sacrifices that only the priests were. But since he's Saul, he should be able to do it. He's the king. So God said, I don't want that guy up on the throne anymore. I can't stand him. But God, he's strong. I don't care. His character, it stinks. So he went to look for another guy. 
And Samuel was the guy that went to look for the next king. And look at what it says in 1 Samuel 16, 7. God's giving Samuel direction on who to look for. Here's what it says. The Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height. Don't look for outward. For I've rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. you got to stop on that a second. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance. Ooh, they look important, impressive, polished. I know preachers that never mess up a word, but Chris, you mess it up all the time. You know, it's not the outward appearance. What does God look at? What does he want? The Lord looks at the heart. He's looking for a kind of person before what he wants the person to do. You could say it like this. Anyone, anyone can dress up nice. Anyone can. But not everyone is nice. Anyone can put on a football jersey, but not just anyone can play football. Every woman can put on makeup, and now even men are putting on makeup to look like a woman, but that doesn't necessarily make them a woman. And just because a woman could put on makeup, it doesn't mean it makes her the marrying type of woman, if you know what I mean. It's all about the heart. God came to seek and save. He's seeking hearts to save them. It's about the inside. He wants to win them. And he has a rescue plan, and it's to seek and it's to save. And the thing about a good father, the thing about a good father is a good father is always seeking, and a good father, when he seeks and finds, he wants to do everything he can to save. Let me just give you an illustration. On my phone, I've got on my phone this really cool app. It's called a Find app, where I know where all four of my kids are all the time. It's a terrible app. I'm always looking at it. So let's see. Oh, it says my son Joseph's in church. He is. He's in church right there. Let's see if I go across Lake Michigan on the map. I see that my son Giovanni is sleeping in right now. Not good. And I see my daughter Jasmine is supposed to be at Moody, but wait, let me, she's at Las Vegas. What is she doing in Las Vegas? <laughs> I'm kidding. It says she's also sleeping in. I don't know. But a good father always <laughs> is always wanting to seek. He wants to know where you are all the time because you're his child. He's seeking. He's hungering to have you with him. Even Jesus said it like this. I love this. It's right before he died. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come and get you so you can be where I am. He's seeking. It's funny when you go on this sometimes like, my son's supposed to get home at 11. I'll say, why isn't he home at 11? And uh-oh, the car, looks like the car is stuck in a, he's stuck out in the field. Did he crash? And your heart wants to go and run after him. You want to save. I remember when my sister Tammy one time was a, I think she was a junior in high school, and she got a waitressing job at a Perkins 10 miles from her house. And she'd take my dad's big old station wagon, you know, the paneled kind, and you'd always have the tires, you'd run the tires out bald back in the day. I don't know if you did, but my dad did. He's a Honda. 
and my sister took the station wagon to work, and this snowstorm came in, and I can remember she's off work about 10 o'clock, and she called up at about 10.20 on the phone to my dad. It was back then they had these things called rotary phones. You guys remember those things? And it was a dial-up phone, a land, an actual landline. I remember my dad was on a landline, go, you know, he goes like this. You know what, it's trouble, he goes like that. Ugh. He just, what he had to do, the phone rang. Before that, he was sitting on the couch reading with a blanket by the hot fire. The phone rings. He hears that my sister went down a slippery road and smashed into a tree, and she was there crying, my sister Tammy, and said, Dad, will you come pick me up? Instantly, my dad, after he got off the phone, he goes, Chris, you're coming with me. Grab the dog. We got into his Cordoba. Yeah, we got, I had a dog buff. My dad's driving. Buff's in the middle. I'm on the right side. It's back in the day when you didn't need to buckle up. Those were the days. Remember that? <laughs> we had an old a Cordoba. Remember the guy from Fantasy Island? That's a Cordoba. My dad got in a Cordoba, and that thing was nothing but steel, so we weren't going to get hurt. And I can remember driving to go rescue my sister, and she's out freezing in the cold and feeling terrible because she's hit a tree, you know, and she's ashamed of herself. And it really wasn't a big dent. My dad said, ah, don't worry about it, Tim. It gives the car character. Don't worry about it. It's a station wagon anyhow. Put her in the car, got that car towed, and he didn't care. He rescued her. I think one of the problems we have is we do something wrong, and we're ashamed. And we hide. And we're like, God never wants to be with us. God doesn't care about the wrong. He cares about the damage the wrong is causing you. He wants to save you from it. He doesn't care about the wrong. He cares about the damage to your life that the wrong is causing you. Religion wants you to feel condemned the rest of your life. A relationship with the living God wants you to be saved from your sin. He's seeking to save the lost. And this is where it gets tricky. It's this word. This is the hardest part of the word. Makes sense that he came, the Son of Man came. That makes sense. Seeking to save even makes sense, but it's the lost is where people usually don't get it. He wants to rescue all those people who are distant, alienated, wandering far away from him. The lost, so he can bring them close, save them. But if you don't admit you're lost, you won't see any reason for the need to be found. If you don't think you're sick, you'll never go to the doctor. If you don't think you're alienated from God because of your sin, you'll always think you're okay. And one of the hardest things as a preacher is to convince you that all of us are corrupted and alien from God. That's why Jesus came, to save you. Here, let me give you another illustration. You're in an airplane. I'm the steward, and I give you this backpack. It's kind of a lumpy backpack, ugly, really ugly backpack, and I say, put this on. You'll love it. So you're like, no, I won't. It makes my seat uncomfortable. It's a big, lumpy backpack. I don't want to put this on. I say, put it on. It's free. I'm giving to you this free. I don't, want a, I don't want a lumpy backpack. Well, it's a parachute. It's nice. Keep it. It 
just makes a right uncomfortable. And people look at me and they laugh at me and they say, what an idiot. You're sitting there at that big lumpy backpack. What if I just told you, though, both of the wings have been shot off and we have no wings and we are plummeting 20,000 feet and we're going to die in five minutes. Okay, give me the backpack. We often saw Christianity like, here's Jesus, you'll have a wonderful life. People will love you. Just believe them. And most people are like, no, they won't. They're going to think I'm kind of odd, actually. They're going to make fun of me. I don't want this. But if I tell you that sin is real and you're plummeting to an eternity outside of the presence of the greatest father who ever lived and with the son you can have eternal life, believe it. You'll put it up. The hardest part I have is convincing you you're lost. All have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. And that's true. The way you can tell is you've sinned. Have you ever sinned once? You're like, yeah, but I'm not as bad as the worst sinner. One sin is proof. One sin is proof that inside of you is this thing called sin. This disease called sin. Jesus has come to save you. It's interesting how he did it. Because you have most of the other gods, most of the other religions, their god is sitting on some hill up high up there, distant, uncaring, usually angry. But the way Jesus came to save us is to become like us. He joined us in our dilemma so he could grab us and push us out. He entered our world, put on flesh, put on our likeness. Not only did he want to be man, but it's the only way he could save mankind. That's how he did it. To seek and to save the lost. The biggest difficulty of Christianity is every listener is lost before they're found. But one of the problems with lostness, it leads you to believe that you're already found because we're blinded to our lostness. That sin's greatest weapon is its ability to blind us to ourselves. So to open our eyes, so to prove to us we are lost, Jesus went to the cross and died to wake us up. That's why the blood is red. <clears throat> Talking to one of my sons this week, and he said, you know what is the most neutral, calming color is green. And God made the world mostly green. Grass, plants, flowers, leaves of flowers. It's neutral. And that's why blood's red. It's meant to wake you up to who you are. You need a savior. His broken body is meant to break our hearts. And when our heart is broken, it is then that it's open to being fixed. And then when we're fixed, and then when we're finally repaired, we see that the repairman is our good father and his wonderful son, Jesus Christ. All we can do, all we must do, is to praise him. And even the rocks understand that. So let me just kind of finish with one last question. At the beginning of the message, we started with two cases. Zacchaeus in the city of Jericho and the chosen people in the city of Jerusalem. 
There were two responses. Zacchaeus was glad. He was glad Jesus arrived. I want to show you something that I didn't read to you in Luke 19. Go back to Luke 19. Verse 40 was where we ended. I want to keep reading. This is the response of the chosen people when Jesus arrived. Luke 19.40, Jesus says, I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And then here, listen to the rest of this. Verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. Meaning, on this day, the Son of Man came. On this day, that's what he's saying. To seek and save the lost. So he said, if you would have known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another. Why not? In other words, they're going to be destroyed. Where Zacchaeus was accepted because he was glad... They're going to be destroyed. Why? Because look at the very end. Because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. You weren't ready for him. So my question is, which city are you residing? Jericho or Jerusalem? Because God comes to you through the gospel, through his Holy Spirit. Paul says it today. If today you hear his voice, if today... This moment, you understand what I'm telling you? Harden not your hearts. And then he says also in 2 Corinthians, because today is the day of salvation. Which city do you reside in? Jericho, where you're glad. Or Jerusalem, where you don't recognize his approach. Jesus has come to town to seek and save you which way you respond. And you know how you can tell which way you respond? Those who are from Jericho, their life becomes a sacrifice of praise. I'll give you everything, God, because you're the best. Do you praise him? Why not praise?